I don't got the vocal cords to uh, drive by guilt you to sit down. Um, hey, family, it's so good that you're here. Uh, first off, uh, a couple days ago, my throat started to give up, and uh, I feel like I got punched in the vocal cords by a silverback gorilla. So this is what peak performance looks like today. Um, or I'm going through puberty. Could have been... Could be either way, actually. Um, and, uh, but we're, we're picking back up in the Gospel of Mark. Last week, uh, we started in the Transfiguration, where they go up to the mountaintop. And uh, today, we're going to come off that mountaintop and interact with the discussion that Jesus had with his disciples. Um, last week, after church, uh, a group of us, which I'm probably the only one, I call it the Sunday Afternoon uh, mountain biking club, we all get together and we kind of chose a trail to go to and to ride mountain bikes because we knew the snowstorm was coming and uh, so we, let, let's get the mountain bikes out one more time and like go up a hill, went over to Horse Gulch and uh, went up there uh, to mountain bike. Now, by comparison, everyone that has ever went mountain biking in this group I'm 100% sure I weighed the most out of the whole group. And I'm at least a foot shorter, all right? Which is not an accomplishment. It's just being taller than a midget, all right? And so I don't know what I look like on a mountain bike, but I can tell you right now, it's not cool. And so I kind of am a, just a dwarf and like a mile behind the rest of the group, like trucking my way up. And I'm going up the whole time. And they have to wait on me the whole time. So it's like I don't even get to interact on the way up the mountain because I'm so far behind. And as I was going up, I just kind of gave up. And I was like, I was in my granny gear, and I was like, all right, it's cool, I got cardio. So out of breath, get off and start to push my bike up the hill. And this greasy-looking orangutan, coming down the mountain, walk, walking, doesn't even have a bike, walking, smoking a cigarette, looks at me and says, that's a really expensive push cart you have there. And I was so out of breath, the only thing I could say is, like, thank you. It's like, in my mind, I wanted to just nail him. Like, I, you're smoking a cigarette talking to me about what we're doing. It's like, I'm completely covered in sweat, and I'm pretty sure I smell better than you. Like, there's so many things that, like, after the fact came to me, but in the moment, I had no, my lungs were, I just, thanks, man. I just kept going. And he, expensive push car, I got my bicycle at Goodwill, all right? Like, he doesn't even know. All right, but we get up to the top of the mountain and I was like, there is no way that, that all of this work is going to be worth it. Like we just, I'm going because it's like the relationships of the dudes that we're in is like, this isn't, the juice ain't worth the squeeze, brother. All right, but we turn around and go downhill and all that body weight, that is gravity just loving on me, pulling me back. When we go downhill, it helps me. I'm twice as fast, right? And on the way down, we, we could stop and interact and talk, and it didn't sound like I needed the Heimlich maneuver or whatever. There was interactions that get to happen. It was so much fun just coming down the other side, and we get to talk. Some of you, have you ever went hiking with your kids, and on the way up, like the conversation, like there's this many words on the way up, but on the way down, it's like you talk more. Have you ever like went hiking with friends and on the way down it's almost like joyful and on the way up it's a crucible, right? 
And so I, I think of that because we're going to get today to discuss Jesus on the way down. Jesus who's going to take extra space and have a little bit of a... He's going to... There's going to... Him and the boys are going to kind of have a talk on the way down. And there's some things I want to just pull out of this discussion that they have on the downside of the hill. Uh, let's, before we do this though, just to ask for God's help. Um, one thing we believe in this house is that without God's help, we will never understand the Bible. And so we need Him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we enter Your courts with thanksgiving and Your presence with praise because You are the author of Scripture and You have given it to humanity for all time's sake that we might have a revelation of who You are. You have given us a beautiful prophetic word that has revealed to us the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ. And so God, help us today to look full in your wonderful face through the beauty of Scripture. God, I cannot rightly preach your word without your help. And that's much bigger than just my voice. I can't do it because of my limitations and sinful nature. And so God, would you overcome my limitations so that my brothers and sisters in here and the friends that are gathered, gathered with us would hear your truth and be impacted by it. God, my brothers and sisters in here, we, we, we can't listen rightly to your work because we're distracted by our phones. We're distracted by our calendar and the stuff we got to do. God, would you just create um, a sacred space right here for us to hear. Give us ears to listen. Clear our palate that we might taste and see that you are good. God, um, like you did with your disciples, would you walk us down the mountain and explain to us your word that we might revel just a little bit more in how glorious the Messiah is. So Jesus, this is all about you. Have your way. We pray in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. If you've got a Bible, hope you do. Flip that dude over to uh, Mark chapter 9. 1 through 13, it was read during our worship service because worship doesn't happen independent of the word. Worship happens through the word. And so let's jog a little bit. I'm going to do an all-time jog and then we'll uh, get into where I'm going in verses 9 through 13. But last week we talked about in, in verse 1, Jesus looks around at the boys and says, hey, some of you are not going to taste death until you see the kingdom coming in power and glory. Some of you are not going to taste death until you get a taste, a sampling, an appetizer of what the kingdom is about. This is going to be the chips and salsa that appetizes you for what's happening in the full course meal. You're not tasting death. And we said this, at minimum, a lot of theologians disagree about what verse 1 is talking about, whether it's Acts 1-8 or something in the second coming. But at minimum, what we can say here is the connective tissue in the text is saying that the tasting of the kingdom coming in power and glory at least has to happen in, 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 is at least describing what happens six days later when Jesus unveils himself in full glory, right? And the word is transfigured, which comes from two Greek words, metamorphosis. So Jesus goes like full power ranger and goes from meek and lowly into Optimus Prime. And so we said at minimum... What verse 1 is describing is this transfiguration when Jesus just kind of goes next level and gives them a little sampling of what the second coming has in store for us. 
And we get an idea of what resurrected encounters of Jesus would have been like. Perfected in glory. And this is described in different gospel writers different ways. And you could kind of sense that words fail them. Like they're reaching out. And Luke says, when he describes Jesus transfiguring on the mountain, he says it's like lightning. And with some of y'all in here that maybe have light-colored eyes and you got to wear sunglasses all the time, you get this. This is Jesus hitting you with the high beam. And he says, lightning. Like in Matthew's account, he says it was like looking at the sun. Which for some of you people that had a little bit of glaze of ice on your windshield today, that you like, I don't need to clear that. Then you drove into the sun, and when the sun hit that, that uh, frost on your windshield today, just blinded you. I literally drove a block from my house and then had to get out and then scrape it. Because I was like, if I'm facing the shadow, it's fine. But if I look at the sun with that glaze on the windshield, I will car kill someone out here. Probably a deer. All right? And so Matthew's gospel is going to say it's like Jesus is like a solar flare that just blinds you. And then here in Mark's account, it's radiant, brilliant, intensely bright. And that brother uses laundry language. It's super bleach. Like someone bleached his clothes that's like, that, like the clothes, it's not like something from the outside put in the clothes, but the clothes themselves are emanating this light. And we talked about this where the Bible in the Old Testament describes that God does not reflect light. God is the source of light. Psalm 104 verse 2 says that God is described as the one who is clothed or wraps himself. In light. Jesus is described in the Bible as the light of the world. We, the church, reflect him like the moon reflects the light of the sun. To a dark world that otherwise would have no light at night. Jesus is the source. We would say maybe this way. Jesus is the light on the road to Damascus that blinded the apostle Paul to the world such that he could see. Jesus is the light of the world. And this description of him is saying Jesus is the God of the Old Testament who is clothed in light. Now, and they go up to this mountaintop and as he transfigures, there's two dudes that roll up on the scene with him. And we don't know that they got name tags, but I'm just guessing Jesus is calling them by name and the three disciples, the inner circle that are given access to him, Peter, James, and John says that Moses and Elijah roll up on the scene. Now, I want to add a little bit to this picture. In simplicity, I said they are representatives, Moses of the law, which came 1,400 years before this occurrence. Elijah is a representation of the prophets that came 900 years before this. These two figures are representative of all of the law and the prophets kicking it with Jesus on the top of the mountain. And I don't know who is attending your small group. But it ain't this good, right? It ain't this good. Like they, they just, they're going to have a little small group time together to discuss. And what we learn in Luke's account is, what are they discussing? Jesus' departure from Jerusalem. That the greatest representative of the law and the, maybe the greatest representative of the prophets of the Old Testament appear 
to meet with Jesus on his road to the cross. And the most important thing that they could ask him is not what is Abraham's shoe size or some conspiracy theory. What are you going to do with Rome? The most important conversation they could have with Jesus is about the cross. They have a gospel talk with Jesus. Moses and Elijah show up and when they talk, they talk about his departure from Jerusalem. Now, these two figures are fascinating. And I talked briefly after service with Jacob about this. I'm not going to be able to hit everything. But can I just give you a sampling of how significant each one of these are connected to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Moses never entered the promised land. Do you remember that from the Old Testament? What's fascinating is, do you know this is probably the first time he ever entered the promised land? And there is no conversation here about how great the scenery is. Do you know what makes the Holy Land the Holy Land? God. You know what makes heaven heaven? Jesus being there. Our brother entered into the Holy Land when he entered into the Holy Presence of Jesus. So there's no significance in that. But he never enters in the Holy Land in his earthly life in the Old Testament. But it says that at the end that God buried him. He has this weird, fascinating typology where God is the one that buries Moses just as it was God was the one that put Jesus to death for your sin. Even in the book of Jude, we went through this, that there was an argument amongst the angels about the body of Moses. Furthermore, Elijah, if you know anything about Elijah in the Old Testament, you get your chariots of fire, like swing low, sweet chariots. Am I right? By the way, song written by a Native American. Uh, swing low, sweet chariots. Is that God took him, so some people say he never died or that he was like translated into heaven. It's this picture of God took him up. So in one of these figures, you have God burying them. In the other figure, you have God almost like taking them up or resurrecting them. Curious. But each of these hinting or suggesting or, or leading into who Jesus is. Moses, I mean, there's so many of these things that I could just, I could spend a whole sermon on each of them, but I'm not going to. Moses left his royal status to free his people from slavery. Sound like anything you ever heard of? Right? He was saved from a child genocide, sort of like Jesus was from Herod. He came out of Egypt in order to run from tyranny. Matter of fact, in Deuteronomy 18, there's a prophecy about Moses saying that God would raise up a prophet like Moses who we can see in the connection, Jesus, like Moses, was a deliverer. He was a covenant mediator. He was a priest. He was a ruler. He prays. He fasts. He shepherds. Like he's a type. Elijah, likewise, was sent by God to rebuke wicked leadership. And like Jesus, he multiplied food. Like Jesus, he raised someone from the dead. Like Jesus, he got in trouble with political leaders. Jesus quotes Elijah about his similar work with Gentile widows. I could go even further and say, in the Old Testament account, Elisha is a figure of the church to Elijah, who is a Christ typology. That is, Elisha is like the church in that he must leave the world in order to follow 
Jesus or the Elijah figure. He is discipled by Elijah as he follows. He gets Elijah's spirit. He is commanded to keep his eyes on Elijah. He gets a double portion of what Elijah does. Exactly what Jesus would say in the New Testament, that those that receive the Holy Spirit will do greater works than these. This is an anticipation of Jesus the Master with us His disciples. But wait, I thought we were going, if I read this passage correctly, to talk about how John the Baptist was the Elijah. Listen, church, they overlap one another as much as they are both like Jesus. Does that that make sense for you so far? So the beauty of where John the Baptist is good is only so much as he is like Jesus in the as much as Elijah is good in the typology is how much he overlaps Jesus. And by the way, you want to be like John the Baptist, you want to be like Elijah, be like Jesus. So these figures that show up would in all in, in people that know the Bible would be setting off all kinds of alarms and flags for them seeing Jesus with Moses and Elijah. Or let me just put it this way. In the text it says, uh, and suddenly around them, they never saw anyone, in verse 8, but Jesus only. Here's what happens. Moses and Elijah leave, but Jesus remains. The law and the prophets did their work, but they find their fulfillment in the Jesus that remains. Can you get that? They leave, but he remains. So they say that they're talking about what? They're talking about Jerusalem. They're talking about the gospel. They're they're talking about, you want to talk about glory. You don't talk about glory around Jesus without mentioning the cross. There's this word. uh, I want to take a rabbit trail if you allow me the privilege. There's this word that I grew up hearing all the time in church. Uh, In particular, my church background was uh, charismatic. It was like Assemblies of God. In the charismatic church, we use this word a lot called Shekinah. Has anybody ever heard the word Shekinah? There's like six of you. Okay, good. Shekinah. Shekinah glory. I have only recently learned that the word Shekinah is not in the Bible. Um, but it's, it's actually used by rabbis to describe glory. Like the tangible weightiness of God. Like when the cloud overshadows them, they would say that's the Shekinah glory. The glory of God made tangible to man is described as this Hebrew word, Shekinah. Um, even one of my friends uh, who's in a charismatic church is named Shekinah after this idea of glory coming down and being made tangible. So, so the rabbis would look back over the Old Testament and say tabernacle. The tabernacle was a portable worship center that moved with God's people and that as it moved, what they said is that the glory of God was inside the tabernacle. Y'all remember that? They would describe the experience of that as Shekinah, the Shekinah glory. Or we'd say the temple, like the glory of God was in the holy of holies of the temple. So the glory of God was surrounded by the walls of the glory of God. Glory of God's on the inside, it's on the outside. But here's what happens. God's people become arrogant and prideful and idolatrous and sinful. And as they chase after sin... The prophets say this word called Ichabod. Ichabod means the glory of God 
has departed. It's like you call yourself a church, but there's no glory. There's no power. Ichabod, you got a temple building, but there's, the glory of God is not in it. Like the glory is left. And this was a condemnation of God's people. It's like you got all the structures, but you ain't got the power of God in the middle of you. And I know it's Christmas season, so when we talk about, <laughs> when we talk about the shepherds, and God comes to a bunch of shepherds in the field, and it says that they, the glory of the Lord surrounded them. Do you remember that? The, glo- the glory? Glory surrounded them? And the response is they kind of explain what God was doing in Jesus. They begin to proclaim and to sing glory to God in the highest. What is the argument to the shepherds? The glory that has departed has come back in the person, in the fullest sense of Jesus. Then we get here to the transfiguration where Jesus unveils that he is the source of all glory and light. Go forward, skip forward with us, Ronnie Foster, to the book of Revelation. And when we get to Revelation, it says there will be no need for a sun and a moon, but the glory of the Lord will light everything. This is the same concept that we're dealing with here in the first passages. This glory is shining in the transfiguration mountaintop experience with the disciples. Here's how I would explain or try to describe what this glory is like. It's kind of getting probably too cold for it now, but kind of as the end of fall is here, it's awesome in Colorado to have a fire pit. Like it's just a great thing. Just throw a fire pit out there. Kids love it. Do you remember maybe the first time you were a kid and you got to play with fire? Or how about this? Do you, do you remember having a big fire and letting your kids... Here's what's going to happen, especially with my boys. I got to see if everything burns. They're going to run around and find things. It's like, Dad, can I throw this in the fire? Absolutely. It's like they go and pick up one of their siblings' toys. Not that. Right? And they're going to poke the fire... They're going to get the smoke that blows in their direction. Do you, do, you, do you guys have the saying where the smoke only blows at good-looking people? You know what I mean? That's what we say in our family. Uh, so the smoke's there, and they're throwing things in the fire. They're seeing how close they can get. And what are we doing? The fire for a young mind is so fascinating. And what we are doing in enjoying its heat is we are basking in its glory. It's heat that comes from it is its glory that we are enjoying. And that's what they do. They, they, kids want to play with it. And yet at the same time, they know that it's dangerous. This is approaching God in worship. And this is why Peter is going to come. And when he's at the mountaintop experience, what does he say? He looks at him and says, God, it's good for us to be here. Amen? Yeah. <laughs> so... Peter gives Jesus a five-star review on Google. It's like, God, this worship, this church is lit. This is amazing. We're, I'm glad we are here. And this, we joked last week, Peter's a real Baptist. When God shows up, he doesn't know what to do, so he just tries to build stuff. 
So he constructs, he's like, let's build one tabernacle for you, one tabernacle for Moses, one tabernacle for Elijah. And it says that he didn't know what to say because he was nervous. And I love that because sometimes God shows up and I don't know what to say to him. Or like I get in this nervous place where I try to just talk and talk and talk. And God cues the cloud, which was a picture of the Holy Spirit overshadowing. Peter is offering opinions and suggestions. He's trying to verbalize what to do with God showing up. And God just silences him. You get this so much better from like Luke and Matthew's account. That as Peter was speaking, God blows the fog machine over. And suddenly Peter finds himself talking like to him in a cloud. And God says, and we have so few accounts of God speaking audibly in the scripture. In the New Testament, there's only two times. One at Jesus' baptism, which draws attention to who Jesus is as the beloved son. And the second one is right here. God audibly speaking, saying, this is my son, my beloved son. Listen to him. Which is beautiful for us. We ended here last week. It's beautiful for us because some of us need to shut up and listen. We're running our mouths. And we're not listening. And so God cues the fog machine. And he strikes a voice that puts Peter to silence. And I say, this is still the challenge for all of us. Is to shut our mouths and listen to Jesus. Every generation has to choose if they are going to listen to the world or if they are going to listen to Jesus. That's the choice in your life. Is you're going to walk out these doors today, you're going to make a choice of whether you're listening to your critics, you're listening to social media, you're listening to the world, or you're going to listen to your creator. And that is going to produce two very different versions of you. It says that God leaves and it says now to our text, looking around and no longer saw anyone but Jesus only. Verse 9. And they were coming down the mountain. Which there's a song about she'll be coming. Sorry, that's just how I think. He charged them to tell no one what they had seen. Until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So think of the glorious things that we just talked about. And the first command for Je- from Jesus to them is a command for temporary silence. The first command coming down the mountain, it's not silence forever, it's temporary silence. Don't tell anyone until after the resurrection what you have seen. Which for me, if I'm the disciples, I'm not exactly sure what I just saw. That's an easy secret to keep. It's like, don't tell anybody. What am I going to tell them about the super bleach? Lightning? The solar flare? It's like, Judas, you're not going to believe it. Jesus is actually underneath it all a super human glow stick. It's like, Judas is like, all right, that's helping me out a lot. Can't wait to betray him. Like, what are you, what are you going to describe? So, let me notice a couple things. 
the first command that Jesus gives them coming down the mountain is a command to silence. It's a command until the resurrection. Now, we learn from verse 10. This is incredibly fascinating. So, verse 10. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. Notice, they have a question that they're not asking Jesus. They have a question they're not asking Jesus that's based on a secret he asked them to tell. Pause. Here's how I describe this for me. Um, I don't like secrets. I don't like to keep them, all right? It's like swallowing fire and then acting like I'm not going to like explode with smoke out of my nostrils. I don't like it. Um, Jesus is saying this is a temporary secret that you have to keep because you half understand what you just saw. So I'm going to need you to hold on to this until you get the whole gospel. Because without the gospel, church, you can't understand the rest of Scripture. Jesus and His work upon the cross and the resurrection is the Rosetta Stone that helps you understand everything else cover to cover that happens in the Bible. This is why scholars without Jesus can look at Greek and Hebrew words and miss the whole point of the Bible. Exactly the same way the Pharisees did when Jesus came to them and says, you study the scripture, think it in them, you have life, but it is they that speak of me. That if you miss Jesus, you're going to twist the rest of it. And so Jesus is like, until you get the gospel, the rest of this isn't going to make sense. Calvin said it this way. He said, when you come to believe in Jesus through the gospel, there is an illuminating work that happens in the believer to understand the Bible that does not happen in the world. Your lost friends do not have the capability to understand the scriptures the same way you do if you are filled with the Holy Spirit. My work is not done, so I'm going to need you to hold on to this thing for a minute. Here's how me looking at them, thinks about the way that would feel. Hauling groceries into my house. Because when we get groceries, I got five kids, there's seven of us that live in our house, getting groceries is like a thing. It is a caravan of getting resources to feed all these kids. And I don't know how you get groceries, but I've been trained my whole life to get those babies in one trip. Right? I have a system of sewing my fingers through every basket to put them in there, right? And I don't know what happened to grocery baskets or grocery sacks, but they're thinner now, all right? Walmart is jipping us, people. And like, you go through the laundry baskets, and I'm going to try to carry every grocery in on one trip. My arms will literally feel like they're falling off. Fingers, brothers, listen to me. Just feeling like they got no blood. Anybody know what I'm talking about? And I will walk with those groceries. I count carrying groceries as cardio. I will grab the groceries and try to take them in one trip. And I do not, under any circumstances, want to stop and drop them for a minute. And then it messes up the whole system. You just got to man up and make one big trip and hold on to them until you get there. Right? I'll kick a door open. It's... You grab as many as you can and try to carry it. That's how I feel like the secret that Jesus asked them to keep. Right? 
Here, Jesus is like, here, hold this really heavy thing above your head. And, and don't drop it until after the resurrection. I don't even know when that is. How long am I carrying these groceries? Jesus, I got I to let go of this thing. He says, no, I want, you to, I want you to hold on to this until the timing is right. Now listen, this is not, for, for some of y'all on the intellectual side, this is not Gnosticism. Gnosticism says there is a special knowledge that is exclusive to a small group which they never share with other people. Jesus is saying this is a special knowledge I want you to share with other people like Peter, your disciple John Mark, who's going to author this gospel. But Christians, have you learned timing is everything? Timing is everything. And so Jesus says it's not a never It's a not yet. Because until the work on the cross and the resurrection is done, all you have is a half understanding of who I am. That if you told people without the cross, it would do more to confuse them than help them. So don't drop the groceries. Hold them until we get there. I mean, this feels like a heavy task, right? So, I talked about questions. And the first question that they don't ask is about the resurrection. Notice now the second question that they do ask. Okay? And so they kept, verse 10, this matter to themselves, the matter having to deal with the risen from the dead, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. So that's the question they're not asking. Verse 11 is the question they are going to ask. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Why? So they don't ask one question, but they do ask another. And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. That's the answer. Then he's going to, notice the skip, and how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Jesus answers their question in verse 13, but I tell you, Elijah has come, and they did to him what they pleased as it is written to him. We will see Jesus explain this later in the Gospels more fully as John the Baptist. Now, John says of himself in John 1.21, That he is not Elijah, and Jesus will explain he is the spirit of Elijah. Here's why I think that's critical. Christians do not believe in reincarnation. John the Baptist is not Elijah reincarnated. He is the similar spirit or typology of Elijah who has come to preach in that way. And so Jesus is identifying the typology of Elijah in the person and work of John the Baptist, the forerunner. Notice, he answers their question about Elijah. But, he uses it to circle back in the middle of it and say, how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Jesus uses their question to come back to the one they're not asking. Put it another way. Jesus uses their peripheral question important as it may be, 
to come back to the central question. Now, for some of us, this is problematic to begin with. Because we think that when we became Christians, like two days later, we should know all the answers. And even in some of the church cultures I know some of you grew up in, asking questions was looked down upon. But in the text, it's because they believe Jesus is the Messiah that it raises questions. Questions that God loves to answer. They're not dirty questions. They're not bad questions. Now, questions, in and of themselves, neutral. But they can come from a good place, and truth be known, they can come from an evil place. The Pharisees will ask Jesus questions that they don't want him to answer. And his followers ask questions because they want to believe more. The questions, in and of themselves, are not bad. Where they come from can be good and can be bad. But let me put it to you like this. The reason why they believe Jesus is the Messiah walking down this mountain, that's what they believe. But what they don't understand is they have been taught and they see in Scripture that Elijah must come first. So Jesus, if you are truly the Messiah, where's Elijah? We believe you're the Messiah, so that raises a question for us. How does this biblical prophecy fit in? Flip over in your Bible to Mark, uh, Malachi chapter 4. This is where they're coming from. Malachi chapter 4, starting in verse 5. It's Bible drill time, people. Behold, end of Malachi. Last Old Testament thing before we start the book of Matthew in the introduction of Jesus. Here's how the Old Testament is going to end. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Exact same stuff that came uh, and was proclaimed to John the Baptist's parents. Lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. This is a mixing of the first and second comings of Jesus. The day of destruction being the second coming. What this is saying is there's a typological Elijah that will come before the judgment day of the Lord. John the Baptist coming before Jesus is still before the judgment day of the Lord. But they didn't see John the Baptist that way. And so Jesus is explaining that the evil men did to him exactly what they wanted to do. They came and they beheaded John the Baptist. If you want to get more on that teaching, you can find it online where we spent a whole sermon just talking about the role of John the Baptist. So here's the point. Jesus takes their question that is not, it's not um, a conspiracy theory. It's not trivial, like what is Abraham's shoe size? It's not silly. He takes their question and he answers it because it is a statement that God had put in his own word. He takes their question and answers it because it's going to help them know Jesus more. And not all of the questions that come to your imagination are really going to help you worship Jesus. And because of that, some of your questions this side of eternity are not getting answered. But you got a biblical question that's going to help you identify Jesus better? Go to God and see if He don't answer that one. See, the thing was, 
God put himself on the record as saying Elijah would come. And so the disciples need to know who Elijah is so they can worship Jesus more. I love these questions. I love them. I love biblically anchored questions that help people know Jesus. Because here's the thing. Where you got a church going hard after Jesus, you will always have these kinds of questions. But you got a church that does not care about Jesus, and if they don't care, they're not asking these questions. They show up, listen to sermons, and leave, and it never hits their hearts. Do you see what I'm saying? Or they get obsessed with YouTube video peripheral silly questions. Not Malachi 4, John the Baptist, gospel pointing questions. This is critical. Do you believe that if there is something essential for your faith, that if you take that thing to God and take that thing to the Bible, that God is willing to answer it? Because here we find God loves these kinds of questions. He loves people more. God, church, I, I, this is simple, but I, I want to put it there. Do you believe that God wrote the Bible in order for you to understand it? Like, it's gettable. Like, I find the Bible unbelievably simple. I know that sounds like, like crazy for as long as it is. Like, there's goats dying and all kinds of stuff up in here. But I think that it's God communicated his word in order for you to get it. And if it helps you get there, I think the Holy Spirit will reveal and lead you. I've, I've heard it said this way. The main things are the plain things. And the plain things are the main things. And we get caught in these obscure controversies on the outside and we miss front and center. And so Jesus takes their question and, and he answers it. And yet at the same time, he comes and doubles back and says, remember that question that's in your heart that you want to ask, but you, you're afraid to ask? Like, you're not on the fringes completely with the Elijah question. You're just kind of like secondary. You're kind of like right here. And so because that's a biblical thing, I'm going to answer it. By the way, uh, this is unbelievable too. Do you notice here that Jesus agrees with the scribes of the day? I know we like to talk about the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees as though they're wrong on everything, and they're not. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus agrees with the Pharisees on the resurrection. They did not teach everything completely wrong. Matter of fact, what precipitated this question is the fact that the disciples understood the teachings of the scribes on Malachi chapter 4, and that that teaching was accurate. So he here agrees with the scribes. And then he uses it, and this question, this peripheral question, to get to the central question, which is the resurrection of the dead. Paul argues that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, our hope is in vain. The resurrection is not secondary. It is central to what it means to be a Christian. If, if you're going to join this church, and we have people that are in the process of joining this church, we have a clear biblical stance on the resurrection. You know why? Because it is a closed-hand 
non-negotiable doctrine that if we ever abandon it, we're no longer Christians. And Jesus is taking the boy. It's like, the Elijah question is important. The resurrection is important-er. It's good English down there in Cortez, Ronnie. And so he, he wants to make the main thing the main thing. And look at how he asked this question, and then we're going to end here. <laughs> this is unbelievable. <laughs> and 12, and he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things, period. How is it written? That's, that's how he phrases the question. How is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? The same way that evil men did whatever they wanted with John the Baptist, how is it written that likewise Jesus would suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Now, I'm going to argue the way that you had a phony leader who was controlled by Jezebel, and that, that whole dynamic is the anticipation of how John the Baptist with Herod and Herodias was how it was written of him. Okay, So that's, that's the typology that's going I know it, we've never thought of having a leader who's actually controlled by somebody else, but in the Bible they had one. And so, the, but in that typology of how that happened, that was an anticipation of John the Baptist being treated with contempt and suffering, right? And he was beheaded. Jesus circles back to that and says, okay, now, okay, now Sunday school, Awana kids, house church leaders, Christians for 20 years, tell me from the Old Testament, can you? how it was prophesied about the Messiah that he had to suffer. Because what we've seen throughout his rebuke of Peter is that the disciples love the conquering Messiah that comes in the book of Revelation where Jesus got a sword in his mouth and just smokes the wicked. Disciples love that picture of Jesus. But the suffering servant in Psalm 22 that hundreds of years before crucifixion was ever invented, it says that they would pierce his hands and feet. They would cast lots for his garments. That his bones wouldn't be put out of place, which is a picture of like that he wouldn't have any broken bones. The, the Bible, Isaiah, he was bruised for our transgressions, beaten for our iniquities upon him with the chastisement that brought us peace. Jesus is challenging them. Can you share the gospel of Jesus' suffering just from the Old Testament? So talk to me, Christian. How was it written? If Jesus posed this question to you, could you share the gospel with just the Old Testament and point to Jesus' suffering for sin? How is it written in the lamb being slaughtered? How was it written in Moses' typology? How was it written in the festivals? Y'all remember we went over that a few weeks ago? How was it written? Jesus brilliantly leads them back to the scripture and to the main question about himself. So, make an observation. They are not discipled, study the Bible, and miss Jesus. They are not discipled to study the Bible about how to fix your marriage and somehow never get around to Jesus in the gospel. They are not discipled to study the Bible about this controversy or that controversy theologically and never get to what is sure, solid, foundational, the gospel. They are not discipled to study the Bible and to miss Jesus. Because what good is it if you put the puzzle pieces together about John the Baptist and about Elijah, but you miss 
what is most important about the Messiah. What good is it? Um, have you ever had those pictures um, where they're like connected dots? Like there's a picture of like, there's dots and the kids have to go from like, or adults, you know, it's whatever. Uh, one, two, you have to color in order, you draw the lines in order and then you've got to color it systematically. If you get those lines out of order and you just start randomly going around, it's going to look like a fractal or something, right? It's going to be undistinguishable what the picture is. So in order to get the picture in the connected dots things, you have to go in the order that it was created to go in order. And that's what Jesus is teaching them here about John the Baptist. He has his place, but the most important picture has to be revealed. Second Peter chapter 1. Flip your Bible. We're done. Second Peter. This is unbelievable. Second Peter. Peter, James, John, on the mountain, right? This is where we want to... And he's going to talk in the epistle that he authored about his experience there. And he's going to leave us with something. He's going to leave us with the same thing that Jesus left him with about the importance of how it was written. Second Peter, chapter 1, verse 16. For we do not follow cleverly devised myths. That's all world religions right there. We do not follow cleverly devised myths. When we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Doesn't that sound exactly like the transfiguration? But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. This is not cleverly devised myths. This is historical eyewitness accounts of what happened. Verse 17. For when he received honor and glory from the Father, and the, vo- and the voice was born to him, by the majesty of glory. Quote, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Okay? So that's pointing at least to his baptism and likely here we're going to see the additional it has to do with the transfiguration as well. Verse 18. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. How many people have studied the transfiguration before and have never known that this passage is in the the New Testament? We were with him on the holy mountain. Nothing special about the mountain except for Jesus. What makes it holy is Jesus was there. 19. And we have a prophetic word more fully confirmed. I'm going to come back there. More fully sure. To which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp Shining in a dark place. That's the description of Jesus as the light shining in the darkness. But he's ascribing it to scripture. Until the day dawns. And the morning star rises in our hearts. So the scripture is the transfigured glory of Jesus shining. Until the second coming when the full light of all is revealed. Knowing this first of all. That no prophecy of scripture comes from one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Your Bible was not authored by man primarily. But men spoke from God as they were carried along with the Holy Spirit. That's what your Bible is right there. Holy Spirit authored Scripture. Here's what he just said. We were on the mountain. 
And you might tell me if I saw Jesus on the mountain. Like we go up to Engineer Mountain and Jesus like unveils himself and it's just full high beam solar flare Jesus. And I see a cloud and I hear glory from heaven. And I hear the Father speak audibly. If I'm up there and I see all that, God's speaking and I'm hearing it and I'm seeing Jesus, and I, but I don't see it. I, if I could have that experience, my faith would be sure and I would believe. Peter was there. He saw all of it. He got all that you wish that you got. And he says, if you got the Bible, you have something more fully sure. He says it's the prophetic word that you hold in your hands when you hold this Bible is, there's no other way to put it, is better. It's better than the mountaintop experience. He says it's better. It's more full. It is complete confirmation. It is more sure. What God has done in his word. That word teaches us that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. That he's here telling them that I'm going to the cross in Jerusalem. That he he is going to die for the most wicked and dark parts of who you are. He's going to take that darkness on himself in the cross. He's going to bury it and he's going to rise from the dead. That you might have life eternal with him in heaven. I'm going to pray for us. And then we're going to take communion. Dear Heavenly Father, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, thank you for bringing us the kingdom in the person and work of the king. Thank you for bringing light into our dark world. God, I pray here today that your word would speak in such a way that if there is darkness in any heart here, that your light would shine into them and take it away, even my own heart. And that, God, we would see in your word, we have something better than what the mountaintop can give us. Something more sure. So, God, would your Holy Spirit come again and enter men's hearts, convict of sin, and lead us to a place where we know we need the gospel. God, I pray that with so much love for these people in Jesus' name. Everybody said, Amen. Come on, brother.